So, James has a message this morning to us from God's Word about wealth. And our tendency this morning is going to be to say, well, that's not me. Wealthy people are outside of me and my friend circle and my sphere of influence. Those are other people. What I hope to show you by that illustration is, in fact, that is not the case. If you drove here this morning in your own car and you own your own home, although currently the bank owns it, but you're working on it, you are in the top 12% of the world's population as it relates to wealth. So James is talking to us this morning. And what he's telling us is we need our focus on God and not on the things of this life. He wants to combat what's known as secularism or to be tied to and have our focus exclusively on the things of this life. And so God should loom much larger in our vision than he often does. So thank you so much, children. If you are age four up to grade six, head on downstairs for your time of continued worship. And guys, make sure you try to share those Cheerios around a little bit. Although Noah's only got one, so he might keep that for himself. For those remaining in the auditorium and watching online, take your Bibles, if you would, James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And this morning we're going to, again, be talking about this idea of what it means to be secular. We hear that phrase used a lot, this idea is a secular idea, or this new type of music is a secular type of music. And typically in our context, it's a term that is used to distinguish something from that which is Christian. So there are things that are Christian in the way that we classify things, and then Everything else is quote-unquote secular, but that's not actually what the, wor the word means. The word secular simply means of this life. It simply means a focus on the here and now with no thought for there and then. It is to live life as if heaven and eternity are not realities. It's to live life as if this life is all of life and there is no life to come. It is to live life as though these years that we get, short as they are in this life, are our focus exclusively and we do not focus at all on eternity to come. So let me start with this morning with an illustration from Mark Dever. Allow me to introduce you to Secular Sam. Secular Sam is very successful. He has a good job, a nice girlfriend, a beautiful apartment, a new car, and excellent health. He is humorous, intelligent, and personable. Secular Sam is also a Christian and actually quite an active one. He has an evangelical background, though he's chosen to leave behind some of the embarrassing bits of it is theologically conservative and believes in the authority of Scripture. How many of you are warming up to Secular Sam thus far? Sounds like a guy that you'd like to meet. You're very engaged and interactive this morning. Appreciate that. 
Indeed, he's even come to see Scripture as the most satisfying explanation for all kinds of phenomena, from the origin of the world to the meaning of life. Sam, being a student of Scripture, can realistically examine humanity's sinfulness. He can even confute his secular friends with historical evidence for the resurrection. He knows that all of life is under the scrutiny of God's word, not just religion, but also business, philosophy, ethics, economics, and law. So far, so good? Sound like a good guy? Okay, all right, good. We're with me? Good, good, good. What is it then that makes secular Sam so secular? Sam is secular because he expects to wake up in his bed tomorrow morning. He's never even heard of what his grandparents called the blessed hope. Sam's hopes and concerns, even about his own spiritual life, are all contained in this seculum, the Latin word from which we get secular, that is, this age and this life. Sam assumes tomorrow will be just like today, which has some serious implications for the way he thinks about today. Well, this is part of a larger article that I shared on Friday of last week, and I would encourage you to read that. Secular Sam. How many of us would that be an accurate depiction of? We say that we believe that this life is fleeting. We say that we believe, as Luke, Pastor Luke preached last week, that this life is but a vapor, appears for a short period of time and vanishes away. We say that we believe that we are going to be in God's presence one day. We say that we believe that our focus is on the life to come. We say these things, and yet, how do we actually live our lives? James starts his letter in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, outlining for us the reality that to be a true Christian, to truly follow after Christ, involves at least three things. We must have an active, enthusiastic interest in helping those who are helpless, especially at the cost to ourselves. A sacrificial love should mark us as believers. We ought to bridle our tongue, which means that our heart is being transformed by the gospel so that we do not speak anymore as we used to speak. And then we need to keep ourselves unstained by, unspotted from the world. And he's unpacked each of these things, these three things for us. And as we've talked about worldliness starting at the beginning of chapter 4, he's continued to unpack this. And now as he starts chapter 5, he goes down to the deepest level of what this means. What is it then that characterizes someone who is stained by, spotted by, identical with, looking like the world? What does that look like? It is someone who is secular. It is not that they listen to a certain type of music or go to certain places or do certain things necessarily, but it is that in their minds, this is all there is. In the way that they conduct themselves, in the way that they think, in the way that they spend their money, in the way that they spend their time, in the things that they're passionate about, in how they live their life, their mindset and mentality is this life is all there is. And James is going to speak directly to those types of people this morning. And so don't shut this message off before it even gets started to say, well, he's talking to rich people, I'm not rich, so therefore I'm going to take my pre-sermon nap 
and my post-sermon nap early, and I'll just get that out of the way, and then I'm ready to fresh to go for lunch, all right? Stick with me if you would. So James chapter 5, we're starting to read at verse 1. Again, if you're visiting with us, everything we do at Grace Baptist Church is founded on and rooted in the Word of God. We want you to have a copy in front of you, whether that's digital or uh, this is called a book for some of you. Um, we want you to have that in front of you. We have book copies of the Bible for you in the church in the chair back, so underneath the chairs in front of you, and there it's on page 952 in that version of the Bible. Uh, and if you don't have one, take that with you. That's our gift to you. Page 952, James chapter 5, starting to read verse 1, and we're going to look at the first six verses together this morning. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury, and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God. How are we feeling? Warm and fuzzy? Now we knew what we were getting into, I hope, as we started in the book of James, and many of you have commented that James has stepped on your toes, and that's good but he's about to crunch them quite hard. This is a section in James where he sort of puts on the Old Testament prophetic hat in a way that he hasn't yet, hard as that is to believe in all that he has said quite forthrightly. And here he is going to be extraordinarily blunt with us. And again, lest we think that he's talking to other people because we don't feel that we are under the classification of rich, we need to bear in mind that, again, if we're sitting here this morning and we have our own vehicle, our own home, we are most likely in the top 12% of the world's wealth. We would be globally rich. And so let us see what James has for us this morning. He begins in verse 1 by outlining the fact that secularism is sin. He doesn't fool around, as we know. James is very much to the point. As we've mentioned, he grew up with Jesus in his home. Most likely, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. They share a mother, but they do not share a father, as Jesus is virgin-born. He had a front-row seat for perfection in human form. He lived with and grew up with the God-man, but unfortunately did not believe in Jesus as the God-man. And again, as we've said, if it was your brother, would you? However, he has come to that realization understands now who Jesus actually is, and so has no time to waste on frivolity. Time is short, and he's already wasted too much of it, and so he gets very much to the point. Secularism, then, the idea that this life is all there is, and my focus is going to be exclusively on this life, James says, is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, and these words certainly in English, but also even in the Greek, sound like the, the thing that they're describing. They're onomatopoeic. It's, it's, a, it's a very guttural, just uh, scream almost, but it's, it's, it's 
I've, I've, I've lost everything. I have, I have nothing. My whole worldview has been shattered, and I'm just howling now, weeping. And he's, he's calling rich people to do this. In similar fashion as he has said that we should let our laughter be turned to mourning, he's already told us these things. Because these miseries, he says, are coming upon you. It's, it's happening. If your focus is exclusively on this life, James says you need to know the truth. And the truth is that the things of this life are going to be destroyed. It's inevitable. And so if everything you are and all that you have, all of your mental faculties, all of your resources, all of your time, all of your energy, all of your passion, everything has been invested in this life, it's a very poor investment. Because this life is going to be judged by and destroyed by Almighty God. So James says you got to switch your focus. You have to understand that living for this life is a foolish thing to do. And it's worse than that, it's a destructive thing to do. Peter is going to say that this life is going to be destroyed by fire. It's all going to be burned up. And so if you're investing exclusively in this life, in that promotion, in that relationship and that thing, that new shiny thing, the new version of which is identical to the previous version of which, but they've sold you that it's new and better. If that's where your focus is, James says, buckle up because it's all gone. It's all going to be destroyed. And so living with a secular mindset, which is not necessarily, as I said, mean a certain type of music or uh, whatever it might be, it's simply to say your focus is exclusively on this life. Now he's introduced that in the previous section in chapter 4 that Pastor Luke talked to us about. These individuals are making plans. We're going to do this. We're going to be here for this period of time. We're going to earn a profit. These sorts of things are, are their focus. And James now is coming to these individuals and say, this mindset is foolish and destructive. It's sinful. And then he's going to give us four things that secularism does. So in the second place this morning, secularism hoards. Anybody uh, into hoarding videos on YouTube? Anybody watch hoarders? Okay. Makes you feel better about yourself and your own hoarding because it's not as bad as their hoarding. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't be on the show. Hoarding, right? Having more than you need, but for whatever reason, that gives you comfort that you have these things. You know, even as guys, right? We don't throw anything away in the tool realm because, or even that little offcut of wood or whatever it might be, because I'll use that someday. It's a great day when you get to use that. That's a fantastic day. I'm saving this for 20 years, but I knew today was the day. But hoarding, James says, notice what he says in verse 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Five things to note under this first reality. Hoarding is foolish. Now, I think we know this on a certain level, but oftentimes it takes James or somebody like that to come along and show us the foolishness of it. What has happened to their riches? They've rotted. They weren't used. What has happened to their garments? They're moth-eaten. 
The individual who owned them didn't use them, and neither did anybody else. It's a waste. Your gold and silver have corroded, rusted. Now, of course, gold and silver don't actually rust, and James is not ignorant of that fact. But he uses this word to let them know that how foolish is it to just have this stuff lying around and never use it. You're not using it, and nobody else is either. It just doesn't make any sense. But not only is hoarding foolish, it lacks trust in God. Why do we hoard? We have more than we need. Why? Because we're afraid that that might be taken away. God can't take care of my needs. And so I need to have all this stuff. It's a beautiful picture with the nation of Israel as they walked in the wilderness. What does God provide for them from heaven? Manna. Now, what that meant is, practically speaking, they went to bed, having had their final meal of the day, and they had nothing in storage. If they did, it had maggots the next morning, so I'm sure they quickly got the idea of that. So that would be like us, every night, having an empty fridge, empty freezer, empty, empty pantry, there is no food anywhere in the house, and pillowing our head to say, and God's going to fill it with just enough for tomorrow, every single day. And to not live that way, practically speaking, is to show a lack of trust in God. I'm hoarding things, not that I'm buying things that I am going to use and that I do use, but I'm hoarding things that I don't need and I'm not using because I don't actually trust God to provide my daily bread. What did Jesus tell his disciples to pray? Give us this day what? Our retirement savings plan? What did he say? Give us this day our daily bread. Now again, James is not against rich people. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says there's rich people a part of the congregations he's writing to. Having money is not the issue. The issue is the mentality and the mindset that we have, rich or poor, and in this case, rich. How do we view the things that we have? Francis Chan tells the story of a guy in his congregation, businessman. After a message that Franny preached, he went home and looked at his closet and had 60 shirts. He could go two months and not repeat the same shirt. Most of those he had not worn in months or even years. Now, we, we usually don't know this until we move. If you've moved, whoa, look at all the stuff we have. We have stuff. James says it's not only foolish, it lacks trust in God, but also it's a waste. He says their corrosion will be evidence against you. I don't waste things. I trust God. I use things all to the glory of God. James says the things that are lying around rusted are evidence against that and evidence against you. There are things that you have hoarded and it's wasteful, and you, you should be able to see that. And others certainly do, and God certainly does. It's not against saving. It's not against being wise stewards of our finances. 
but it's to say having things just for the sake of having them that we never use and never allow anybody else to use either, and they just sit there and rust or get moth-eaten or get rotten and destroyed. They literally rot away from disuse. James says that's just such a waste. But notice in the fourth place, hoarding actually destroys souls. It will eat your flesh like fire. James is mixing two metaphors here. Rust, as we know, eats away at metal slowly. It's a corrosive reality. Fire, of course, destroys things fairly rapidly. But James wants to mash these two analogies together to get our attention to say, hoarding not only destroys the physical, tangible stuff, but it's actually destroying your soul. Because the reason why you hoard is because your focus is on this life and not on the life to come, and your trust is in the things of this life and not in the one who made all things and has promised to sustain you. And therefore, slowly, sometimes even we think imperceptibly, our souls are being corroded. Slowly, our trust is being put more in the stuff of this life and less and less in the one who made it and for whom it all is and the goal of all things will be him. We forget that and we get our focus on the things of this life to the exclusion of the life to come. Finally, hoarding is oblivious. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This one's not as obvious at first reading, but what is James saying? The last days are upon you. The disciples in this time period believed they were living in the last days. They'd have a reason to do so. In AD 70, the temple is going to be destroyed. It's the time that Jesus talked about in Matthew's gospel. It's awful. Persecution of Christians is rampant. James says it's like having a party in the middle of Hurricane Fiona on an outdoor patio. It doesn't make any sense. You're oblivious to your surroundings. And he's going to come back to this in just a moment. What does it say about in the days of Noah? What were people doing in the days of Noah? The days of Noah, what were they doing? Eating, drinking, giving in marriage, parting it up, having a great time, impending doom is all about them. And Noah, as the preacher of righteousness, for a hundred years plus, preaches to them, repent, judgment is coming, and nothing changes. Nothing changes about their lifestyle. If we knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would we live the rest of today? Would we live it differently? Or would we live it as we do most every Sunday? How would our week change if we knew that Jesus was coming back this Saturday? And that the reality that James is trying to clue us in on is you're living in the last days. Jesus' return is imminent. The angels said he will come back in like manner as he's gone. Wait for his coming. We don't know when he's coming back. Only God does. But we do know that he is. And that piece of information means we have our senses enlightened in a way that those who do not believe in Christ do not. We don't know when he's coming back, but we do know that he is coming back. And are we living that way? And yet James says you're hoarding up treasure in the last days. 
You're gathering things to yourselves that you will never use just before coming judgment. You're piling up piles of money just so that it can be burned. It doesn't make any sense. Completely oblivious to the reality. Notice in the second place then, not only is the secularism hoard, but secularism defrauds. In verse 4, he says, you've kept back the wages of the laborers. Now, defrauding, all right, is to say that somebody is owed something by us, and we withhold it purposefully because we want it more than we want them to have it. We're trying to amass wealth and stuff for ourselves. We're trying to live for this life. And so we are purposefully withholding payment to those who deserve it, whatever that might be. Now, we are not all wealthy landowners or business owners. But in, in many ways in our daily lives, we owe money. More money now than we've owed probably last year and we're very grateful for inflation, amen? There's more money owed, but the money is owed. And our attitude towards that is telling. Obviously, we'd rather have the money ourselves and not give it to the one to whom it is owed, but James says, again, that shows a lack of trust, and it shows a focus on this life rather than the life to come. Notice in the third place, secularism is self-indulgent in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. There's passive self-indulgence. What does it mean to live a life of luxury? The word here is this idea of soft living. Life that does not know much about hard labor, manual labor, hard work. Soft life, a life of comfort and ease. It's not blatant, it's not in-your-face self-indulgence, it's passive self-indulgence, but it's self-indulgence nonetheless. It's not working with your hands to provide for those that do not have, Ephesians 4, but it's working with your hands to provide for yourself. It's to live a life of unnecessary comfort and ease. That our life, again, is mostly viewed from this life. This is what we want. And so in this life, we want comfort, want ease, want things our way. And so we plan our lives around that, around us, and around this life. Very few modern Christians in our Western world know anything about the concept of sacrifice. We read in church history of those that laid down their lives so that others could hear about Christ, left all creature comforts, left their homes. Some of the early missionaries left not knowing if they would ever see their families again this side of glory. You can read the letters they write to their families. And yet very few modern Christians in the Western world know anything about the concept of sacrifice. If we have everything that we need in the way that we want it, everything's good to go, then maybe we'll give, if there's anything left over, we'll give that to God. That's living a life of luxury, passive self-indulgence. And then there is self-indulgence. This is active self-indulgence. 
spending our time and our money and our resources on the things of this life that are unnecessary. And trust me, there's a lot out there. There are hamburgers that you can purchase in certain restaurants that are hundreds if not thousands of dollars. There's a lot of gold leaf and this kind of things. And who needs a hamburger that costs $1,000? But they'll sell you one if you want to buy it. There's lots of things that we can indulge in of this life. And the more that the evil one keeps us distracted by this life, the more that he keeps us away from actively serving our Lord and Savior. There's a myriad of ways that you can spend your time, money, passion, and resources. But to actively do so for yourself, for this life alone, and not for the life to come, not for eternity, James says it's active self-indulgence. And he returns to this idea of the obliviousness of this when he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Self-indulgence is also oblivious. It's, it's a fairly graphic analogy, but it is like animals headed into the butcher shop, headed into the abattoir. They're, they're on their way to be slaughtered. And apparently they've done studies. They put heart monitors on cows as they go to be slaughtered. No change in heart rate, completely placid. Just heading in, another day on the farm. Going to get a little grazing in, chew a little cut. It's going to be fantastic. Completely oblivious. And James says, this focus on the here and now, this focus on this life, you are overindulging in the things of this life, underindulging in all that God is and all that he offers, and what's coming is judgment. And then lastly, secularism murders. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James has mentioned this at the first part of chapter 4. Where do fights and quarrels come among you? Why do we fight so hard for the things of this life? Why does it bother us so much when the things of this life are taken away? James says, you are in your hearts at the very least, murdering your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because they stand in your way from getting what you want of this life. And he says, the rich are doing that. A righteous person is being condemned and murdered by you. Anybody that gets in your way of getting what you want, you want to remove them by any means possible, subtly or otherwise. And notice there is no resistance. In this time period, the court system was entirely taken over by the rich. James has already mentioned that in James chapter 2. Aren't these the individuals that drag you before the courts, but you're showing partiality to them? The court system all worked on bribes, political networks, familial channels, friendships. The poor had no voice. Despite the fact of all of the things that God put in his Old Testament law, and we went through that when we looked through the book of Leviticus, the rich had found ways around that, loopholes to bypass that, and so the poor were oppressed and had no recourse to appeal. And James says you are actively working against the gospel by your attitudes and actions because your focus is all on this life, not on the life to come. But I hope you caught something in verse 6. 
What's the greatest example of this? Now, we are not told that James has his half-brother Jesus in mind, but it's hard to miss, is it not? Who was the most righteous person that ever lived? Jesus Christ the righteous. Who died the most grotesque and excruciating death that anybody has ever died? Jesus Christ the righteous. And who did not resist Jesus Christ the righteous? He stood as a lamb before its shearers is dumb. Did not resist. We just read through this in our Bible reading plan as we finished the Gospel of Matthew. Those that are trying Jesus are marveling at he does not stab forth in his own defense. Meek and humble. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would be fighting. My followers would rise up in arms, armed revolt. My kingdom is not of this world. And so the question I think that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, is God truly all-sufficient in our lives? As we continually say, the goal of this sermon, which is the same as every sermon that we preach from this pulpit, Lord willing, is not to say, all right, so here's a list of things that are bad, don't do them, so go home this week, try harder, do better. We have to stop hearing that when we hear the word of God preached. No, we need to lean into Jesus more. We need to go deeper in our relationship with him. He is our only hope. Our hearts are continually distracted by and attracted to the things of this life because it's what we're surrounded by. It's what we see. We so badly want the new thing. It's, it's glittery and bright and everybody else has one. We're, we're so enamored with this life. We need help, not just at the moment of our conversion, but our whole Christian life. And that help does not come from within. That help comes from without. It comes from Jesus Christ and him alone. The solution to all of this is not to say, I'm going to go home this afternoon. I'm going to purge my closet, go down to the mission thrift store and give everything away. I'm going to clean up my bank account, give it all to the poor. That These things may be part of what God is calling us to do. But the bigger thing is, is Jesus big in our sight and the things of this life small? Or is it reversed? We need to spend some time in introspection this afternoon and moving forward and say, how much of this life am I living for? How much of this life is very vitally important to me versus Christ? And does it show? And do I lean into him and his grace? Do I find him to be all-sufficient? Jesus says to the people, you're only following me because I give you physical bread. But I'm the bread of life. Have we found him to be so? What does he say to the woman at the well? What is she looking for? She's looking for acceptance and affirmation in all the wrong places. She had had multiple husbands and the man she's with now is not her husband. She's looking for acceptance and affirmation. And what does Jesus say? I have water to drink that if you drink of it, you will never be thirsty again. That's fantastic. Give me that. It's me. I'm the living water. Do we find our satisfaction in him? Do we find our all-sufficiency in him? 
is sacrifice then easy because we didn't really value it that much anyway? Not that we're foolish or not good stewards of the things that God has given us, but does it easily come out of our hands? Or do we grip onto it until God rips it away? James says it comes down to our mentality. Are we living for this life? Are we living for the life to come? Living for the one who made us, is remaking us in Christ, and will one day make us new, and offers us everything in him? Do we believe that? If we believe it, it'll show in how we live our lives. If we don't, it will also show in how we live our lives. Let's look to him in prayer as the music team returns. Father, thank you for your great love for us. We need your grace every single day. We don't feel rich, and we have felt less rich the last number of years than perhaps we have in a long time. And this is not just our perception. There are realities here, Father, that we recognize. And yet I hope it helps us to understand based on our annual salaries and what we have, we are indeed in the top 12% of the wealthiest people on this planet. And Jesus has said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into heaven. Is not a condemnation on riches itself. But it is to say that when we have a lot of this life, there's a grave temptation to have less of you. And so, Father, help us to go from this place. And yes, take some practical steps. But first, as always, lean into you. Run to you. Get on our knees before you. Confess areas where we have put things above you. Stuff more important than you. Or the things of this life have become our functional gods. And you have been relegated to the background. Father, help us. Because secularism is sin and we are susceptible to it every day. Help our focus to be on you. Help our sufficiency to be found in you. Help us live for the life to come. And not ultimately for the here and now. Because your judgment is coming. And there are souls that we know who are oblivious to that fact. And they need to know the truth. Help us to share it with them, Father. And help us to live it in front of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.